I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. I love saying that. Yeah, you say it more than I do. You know why I say it? Why is that? Gives us credibility. Okay. Although if you read the YouTube uh, sections lately on our last comment... Apparently, people don't think I know what I'm talking about when I tell them not to smoke weed with their kids, but I'm sticking to my guns. So you're going to die on that hill? I will. Yeah, uh, because it's funny how everybody, um, when it comes to the the world and and, in the world of recovery, Mm -hmm. everybody's got their point of view and they're sane. And if yours differs from them, they get upset. And what I've found mostly in this world... People want to hear their opinions coming out of your mouth. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, and and, and, and there's so people many. People quit therapy over that. Do they? When you, when you tell people what they don't want to hear, yeah, they'll leave. Never come back. Sure. And, you know, and, and obviously, I, I, so me and my ex-wife, when we were going through our divorce, prior to the divorce, we went to some therapists and some, you know, some counseling. And we had to go to two or three different ones because- she wasn't getting what she wanted out of the therapist. Right. Right. You know, and, 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 and I'm not saying, but, but that's what it is. And I was like, I was like, Hey, look, I'll go to another one, but whatever this one says, mm-hmm. let's kind of just stick with this and go down that road. Let's at least have two visits. See, it, see how it turns out. But a lot of people do. They just, they either want justification yeah. for what they're doing or there's someone to tell mm-hmm. them, no, you're right. They're wrong. Yeah. And if you catch yourself doing that, save yourself time and money and just talk to yourself in the mirror. Yeah, you don't but, really need to pay anybody. But that. let's talk about that. When you're going into a therapy session, uh, why are you going? Are you going to validate your thoughts or are you going to open the horizon and expand your knowledge and figure out why you're doing what you're doing? Yeah, no, that's that's what you have to ask yourself. Self-awareness is a prerequisite to change. If we're going to change and grow and improve, we have to have some self-awareness of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And sometimes that's kind of painful. It's hard to look at ourselves. I think we've all been there. When you're doing self-inventory and it's just you and yourself talking about this and you can be brutally honest, sometimes what you say and what you hear are not fun. <laughs> no, they're not. But that's good. That's how you know you're on the right track and heading towards something that would make meaningful change in your life. A lot of times people make changes, but they don't really mean much. The quality of the change isn't there. So it's important to, to be willing to look at the hard things. I get this question a lot when people go, when did it take – you know what I mean? Like we hear people on this podcast all the time when they say that's when the light switched on yeah. or that's when I knew that I had to do Hit something. They're rock bottom. They're rock bottom. Yeah. And people, how did you know when it was going to take? And uh, I, my answer is when I owned it. 
mm-hmm. when I quit blaming everybody else for my problems. Yeah. If you look back over my uh, history of drinking and alcohol and, and, and all that, uh, it was easy to blame it on the school, on my ex-wife, on my job, on all these external factors. Sure. But if you look at in its entirety, there was one commonality in it, and that was me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was I was the guy that was the one constant in everything that was going down. Yeah. And so, yeah, was there external factors that led to it? Sure. Was there other stuff that, you know, that that forced me or pointed me in that direction? Yeah. But the reality was it was me and my choices that got me where I was. So the only thing that was going to get me out was me accepting it and making different choices and yeah. figuring a way out. Yeah, accountability, taking ownership for things. Like, I don't, you know, we've talked about this before. A lot of times people, uh, especially in social media, will say, like, you are the only one that can choose how you feel about things and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, there's an element of truth in there, but we do influence each other. Mm -hmm. And so things that you might have blamed for your drinking in the past probably did have some influence. Like, they they added to frustration in your life or they added to the inconveniences of your life, the problems of your life. But you're right. The reality is the decision to continue to drink and not get help for your drinking was ultimately yours, right? Like like regardless of things outside of us being helpful or not being helpful, being supportive or unsupportive, those things are all factors and they influence us. But in the end, we're the ones that need to – take ownership for our behavior because then we can take ownership for our change, right? Because that's another thing that can happen. Sometimes if a person doesn't really own their behavior, but they'll listen to a therapist maybe, and they start to make positive changes, guess what I've had people do before is they'll they'll actually give the therapist the credit for it. So do you think that change is long lasting? No, because they don't absorb it. So I love it when I hear people in our therapy sessions say, I did that, because that's what I want to hear is I want them to take ownership. Uh, A good therapist is more like a coach or a trainer who's there with you and teaching you and guiding you and supporting you, but you're the one that has to go to the gym and do the work. You're the one that has to learn the piano. You're the one that has to you know, do the work that changes your behavior, and then you get to own it, and then it's permanent. Before I came in, I was talking to a coworker uh, at my other job about a family member who's battling addiction, and he was trying to get my advice and if there's anything I could do to help out the family. And I was w- recounting my story, and I, and, and I said the thing for me was the ownership. And the other thing was, is that I wanted to get sober for me. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, well, I tried it every other way. I tried to get sober for my job. I tried to get sober for my ex-wife. I tried to get sober for my kids. I tried to get sober for everybody but myself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you were talking about with your therapist is that if I got sober for my ex-wife and I got sober for my kids and something happened to them. My sobriety was in jeopardy then because I did it for them. And if they're no right. longer a part of me, then why am I sober? Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So I got sober for me. The reality is you guys all get a better me because I am sober, but I am sober for me and me alone. Yep. And because I'm a better person this way and you all get a benefit from it. But if I get sober for somebody else, then you're right. I give them the power of my sobriety and I don't want anyone else to ever have that power over my sobriety except for me. Right. If it becomes part of who you are, then it's much more likely to be long lasting and permanent. If it's anything outside of you, then it's likely to be short term. So, uh, Another topic here uh, at the Scott household for the past three weeks, there's been 
a cold, a cough, a oh, it's nose, going around, yeah. a flu. No one knows what to call it. Is it COVID 2.0? Is it the flu? <laughs> is it RSV or whatever it is? It is, it is crazy. Mm-hmm. And so much in the fact that if you go to uh, the grocery store and you want to get some medicine, those shelves are empty. Are they really? Wow. They are empty. And so you're, you're getting a lot of people calling in sick for work. Now, stick with me here. I think that's a valid reason to call in for right. work is sick. Sure. But we've talked about on this podcast before, why not calling in for a mental health day? Right. Why do we always have to be sick to use those days off for our health? Because mental health is a crucial part of that. And there should be nothing wrong with calling your boss and going, listen. I am frazzled. I am burning the candle at both ends. And I need a day off just to decompress. And people go, well, that's what the weekends are for. Really? Do you have kids? <laughs> because if you do, yeah. then the weekends aren't really your weekends because you're doing all this right. other stuff. So when is there a time for you to take a mental health break and just, it should be okay. And I think it is okay for most companies, but you don't have to call in and fake a sickness just to get a day off yeah. to decompress. Well, it has become a policy for a lot of companies. I don't know if I'd say most, but a lot of companies will give you some mental health days uh, to take throughout the year. I think a lot of people, though, are still battling the uh, prejudice of, of mental health and where they're like, mm, will my boss think less of me if if I actually say that's the reason? Is it a sign of weakness if I tell exactly. them? Exactly. And, and, and then they're... But get get this, there's been some really good research over the last 20 years that is pretty clear that the vast majority of times when people call in, like if you look at all companies across the country, people call in and say, I'm sick, I need a sick day. The majority of those are actually mental health, emotional and, uh, and mental health issues. Do you think they uh, create problems in the body to justify it to themselves? Would they go that far? Like, were they calling like, because I mean, there's kind of psychosomatic like, symptoms. Yeah, like I got a tingle yeah. in my throat. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I think for some people, to be that, honest with you, I've called case, in sick yeah. a couple times just to go skiing, but that's yeah. because we had some fresh snow and. Right. And we all knew what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you come back with goggle, <laughs> goggle marks on your eyes, got the raccoon eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were sick. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was sick of being at work. Um, yeah. So, yeah, sometimes people might feel so much guilt that they sort of have to delude themselves and kind of create psychosomatic symptoms. I think a lot of times, though, our body, what we what we undervalue is the fact that our body and our emotions are, are intimately connected. They're not one or the other. And so if you're really depressed, you don't physically feel well, mm-hmm. right? And so when a person calls in and says, I, I don't feel well today, I need a day off – they're probably not lying. They're just under-reporting everything that's going on. The main reason they don't feel physically well is because they don't feel mentally and emotionally well. And so you're you're absolutely right. What what would be ideal, and, and some companies do do this, what would be ideal is if there were resources available for you on those days off. Because if you need a mental health day, if you're overloaded, maybe you have a lot of personal stress going on outside of work and, and you feel like, I just need a day to myself and like, to your point, if you have kids, maybe it's like kids are in school. I could use this time just for me mm-hmm. without any guilt of ignoring my children on the weekend or whatever. Uh, staying home, just sleeping, eating snacks and watching Netflix isn't really taking care of your mental health. Yeah, it's a break from work, but it may not be what really 
boosts you. More of a Band-Aid. Yeah. And so what what is great is if you know what to do on those days off. What do I need? If It's sort of like if I'm sick and like you mentioned, you go to the grocery store to get the cold medicine, you know what you need. You need mm-hmm. some ibuprofen. You need these things to make your, your cold more tolerable. If I need a mental health day, a lot of people don't know what they need. And so we just sort of hibernate. So what kind of things could you do? I mean, I know meditation would be a good uh-huh. one, but maybe people don't know how to get into that. Uh, breathing. Uh, a lot of people are talking about the benefits of uh, ice bath or a sauna or even some light work. I mean, those mm-hmm. are things that people are using. I don't know if they're valid, but I mean... Well, yeah, no, they all have validity, especially if they help a person. Um, I would say what's, what's on a short list, okay? If you're working a lot and you're stressed a lot, you're probably not getting good exercise and nutrition. So right there, those could be things that you look at. Uh, number number three on the list, I guess, would be where is my focus every day? If I'm a busy parent who's also a full-time employee, my focus is always on everybody else but me. And if I'm taking a mental health day, I need to have a me focus. So that can look like going and joining a meditation group for a few hours a day. Definitely some yoga. Uh, how about uh, having a drop-in at a therapist? Mm-hmm. Now, we know getting into therapists can be hard, and that's where a lot of bigger companies succeed in this is if they have people on staff where you can say part of my mental health day is I'm actually going to come in I'm going to go have a, a therapy session, talk some things through, uh, get a plan. Then I'm going to go stop by the gym, do a little yoga, and and go home. And then I might rest up for the rest of the day and, and then try again tomorrow. But So there are things that could be on your list that are actually restorative for you on that, on that sure. day instead of just eating chips. Um, I like it. And that's why I wanted to talk about mental health today, because I think mental health is a crucial part to recovery. It's a crucial part to our uh, ongoing health. And I think it doesn't get the attention it needs or deserves. Well, it's getting a little better, uh, you know, but the, but you're absolutely right. For, compared to when we grew up, uh, it's it's night and day better, but it's not good enough. Just the word mental uh, has a negative stigma about it. You know what I mean? Anything yeah. re- you know revolving around mental was seen as a bad thing. Yeah, and so if people are paying attention, you notice that things have started to change the wording. Like they're here in Salt Lake, uh, we for public services, we used to have Valley Mental Health. Now what's it called? Valley Behavioral Health. Mm. Because there is stigma with some of those words, and I'm fine with changing it if that helps the stigma. But the reality is that we we should embrace the fact that we have a physical body and we have a mental body, and so we have physical health, and we have mental health, and they're intimately entwined. Like if you're physically sick, you're more likely to feel depressed and down. Mm-hmm. If you're depressed and down, you're more likely to feel physically unwell. So they are sort of one and the same. I like it. We've also started doing something a little different on the podcast. We're giving it a shot. It's called Matt's Mental Minute. Yeah, we've got the Mental Health Minute. We're, we're stick, Should we change it to Behavioral Minute? No, I, I like the alliteration. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. Uh, and apparently it's it's very popular on YouTube <laughs> with P, uh, TikTok. TikTok. With people that don't like But we're going to play a little game with it today. We're going to do one story. Uh, can, our have, guy, can our guest today, Mike Jolly, jump in? Or I would it, love it if Mike weighed in on which story he wants to hear. This is like Choose Your Own Adventure. Okay, remember I'm going to let Mike books? choose the first one. Do you remember those books? Yeah. Yeah, you saw kids reading them when yeah, you were a kid? I Did read you? them. You? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so we have two stories. Uh, interesting latest news. This is all brand new science news. Uh, one of them has to do with um, uh, screening patients for cannabis before surgery. 
mm-hmm. because of the dangers of smoking weed before going into surgery. Uh, interesting stuff, actually. Uh, the other one is ketamine and depression. Using ketamine to treat depression. So, All right, let me converse well, with Mike. Real quick. Yeah, Mike, you and Mike talk it out. So, which one do you want to hear, man? I'm curious about the ketamine scenario. Okay, he, we, we, we decided we want to go with ketamine. Okay, so we don't want as many hateful comments this week. On, yeah, on because the cannabis, you know, there may be you know uh, worse pain. We chose ketamine. Go with there the could ketamine. be other things like that. I, All I right. Okay. Fine. We'll never know. We'll, we'll save that know. for next week. All right. I hope nobody's having surgery this week. Okay, ketamine. And and depression. As we know, what's the, you guys probably know this. What's the street name for ketamine? Special K. Special K. And right? you know what? We've actually had somebody on the podcast for depression who used uh, services here in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, ketamine drip to help them reset themselves. Oh, sure. Yeah. Actually, um, Huntsman Mental Health Institute at the University of Utah, we have a ketamine center there. And there are several private and uh, ketamine clinics around Salt Lake City and around the Western United States. I don't want to steal the thunder on your yeah. paper, but research is suggesting that it definitely can help. Right, in certain ways. Now it's a new, it's a newer treatment. So just like uh, anything that's new, we're kind of seeing research roll out month after month and seeing what it looks like, and it's being used in different ways for different things right now. But it's kind of exciting. I like, I like. The science, you know. So what is the science telling us? Well, first of all, I just want to legitimize this. If you want to look up the actual article, it's You know nobody does. This is from your favorite journal, though, American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry. Isn't that your favorite? I got my AARP card ready to rock. And look, here's the doc that did the research. Tell me you don't want to read her article. She's a good-looking lady. Yeah. Yeah. She's a hot doc. She is. (laughs) She is. I'll have to show you a picture later, Josh. But IV, IV ketamine, so using IV, a drip, mm-hmm. and typically the way it works is a person gets screened and they find that they qualify for this type of treatment and you come in and you have a series of treatments. And in a good clinic, like at the University of Utah and other places, uh, you'll have a physician that's there and a nurse that's going to monitor what's happening. So it's a medical procedure and they, they measure how much ketamine they're giving you based now, on Now, while you're doing this, are you weight. talking with the therapist? Are you left on your own? Is it a guided tour? I mean, I mean, so that's a new thing. We can look at some research another time on the, on the therapy with ketamine. Okay. And there's some promising aspects of that where you're actually doing therapy with it. but And for those who don't know, ketamine is a horse drug. It's a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> yeah, essentially. I mean, that's that's what, where it started. That's right, what it I was. Think, I right? mean, that, right? And then people started abusing it because it's psychedelic and sure. you, can have, you can trip on it at high now, doses. Now, I've never right? done that. I'll, I'll tell you that you right now. You haven't had the special K. never had the Good special for you. K. You shouldn't have it. Um, but, but there's such a thing called treatment-resistant depression. And that is somebody who has gone through their depression has been so difficult to manage. They've gone through all the traditional ways of treating, basically all the major medications, all the different types of therapy. They've probably tried alternative things as well. And they come in and they're, I'm still really struggling. And in these cases, I will tell you, you can see a difference in a person. They look sick when they're this depressed. Treatment-resistant depression is a serious thing. And people are at high risk for suicide, but they certainly aren't functional. So these are pretty depressed folks in this study, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And we're talking about a geriatric population. So these are older folks. In this study, I think it was people over the age of, I think they cut it off at 65, but don't quote me on that. But basically what they said was results showed that nearly 50% of the 
people that participated, remember these are treatment-resistant depressed people, so very depressed people, uh, responded well to ketamine, so they had some positive, but 25% actually achieved complete remission from their depression. Which is amazing. That's unbelievable, actually. And so there will be more studies that go through and try to replicate this, I'm sure. Uh, and I know we're doing quite a bit of research at the University of Utah on, on our, in our ketamine clinic. But that's exciting. There's a lot of other things in the study that I won't bother you with, but that's the main th- 50% responded well. They had some positive response that was measurable, uh, which is actually a big deal all by itself. But 25% were qualified as complete remission from their depression. It's just unbelievable to me. So it's exciting because instead of people wondering and guessing how does this drug work and what is it, this is where science and research really benefit us is we can have controlled studies and see that, wow, there really is something to this. Now, again, it's a specific population. These are geriatric folks over the age of 65 with treatment-resistant depression. Would it be different in different populations? Yeah. But at least we know if you're in that population and you qualify as treatment-resistant depression, this would be a really good choice for you. Do you know if it's a one-and-done type deal or is it repeated treatment? So so uh, in this study, I think it was – they had 12, 12 tr- uh, visits, 12, mm-hmm. 12 – I think that it was 12 – and uh, then you would probably go back for maintenance in the future. But after the 12 visits of ketamine treatment, then the person, then this is the measurement that you get. Okay. Is they had 25% didn't have depression anymore. So it's not one and done. It's, it's 12 and done. But then it's likely that in the future they would come back for for maintenance treatments, but that's not part of the study. Which is, is, is kind of what a lot of people misunderstand about recovery. It's usually not a one and done. It, right. It, it's right, a right. journey and it's right. a lifestyle change and it's it, it's evolving. And, and that's what it's it's always meant to be. And and we say, oh, maintenance, do we really need to do maintenance? It's like, well, we do that for everything though, right? Do it for like our health, how, our car. How often do you go to the dentist? You're supposed to go every six months, right? You're supposed to. Okay. Yeah. Not unless you're from Ogden. Is <laughs> every six months. How about to the how about health wise? Like if you Doctors once a year. Well, you gotta go to the have you been to yours yet? No, not the nineteenth. Nineteenth. Yep. Okay, that's coming up for you. Well, how about the gym? Should you once you get in pretty good shape, do you quit? No. Why not? Because you gotta maintain it. Yeah. How about eating healthy? If I had a really great weekend last weekend, I ate really healthy, am I done? No. Why not? Because you want to stay healthy. Yeah, exactly. You got to maintain that healthy diet. So we need to maintain our mental health, and sometimes that has to do with medications, and a lot of times it has to do with therapy. I love it. See, Mike, that's why I'm with him, because he's wicked smart. Definitely. And our guest today is Mike Jolly, and uh, we're cut from the same cloth. Raise your hand if your DOC being drug of choice was beer. All right. 50% 50% of the room. Yep. So we're going to find out more about Mike Jolly and his road to sobriety coming up right here on KSL. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, 
and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Mike Jolly. How are you, sir? I'm excellent. Thanks for having me. Uh, how much sobriety you got under your belt right now? Close to three years. About Close a to three days. years. So it's funny that when you talk about sobriety, it's the same way you talk about infants. You know, <laughs> in for the months? First, yeah, yeah, in months until you get to about three, and then you say three yeah. and some change. Yeah, but it's yeah. like, I got 18 months, he's 19 <laughs> months, he's 22 months. But, but every day counts. It, you're every raising day a child. Yep, you are. Yeah. So uh, where does the story of Mike Jolly begin? Man, it, uh, I, I used to brag that I came from a thoroughbred family of, of alcoholics. You know, um, <laughs> my, both my parents were alcoholic. You know, my dad actually, he got sober when I was younger. So at about four or five, he, and he's been sober since. Mm-hmm. Um, but I chose to live with my mom and she continued to drink. And when she remarried, um, my stepfather was, was a superior alcoholic, unlike any I'd ever seen. And so I, I was raised with it and it was normal for me, you know, to see people drinking all the time and smoking their Winston light 100s, you know, in, in the house with kids walking around. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for them to send you to the fridge to get beers or to make cocktails. Um, they never had me making cocktails. No, they didn't. Uh, so, but they, I, I remember they thought it was, it, it would be funny to give the dog a cocktail. I didn't necessarily agree, but I remember that as a young child, as a memory that still blares in my background. Uh, and so when was the first time uh, young Mike tried alcohol? I think I was five, and I remember it very vividly because my father had left a, a warm can of Budweiser on the coffee table downstairs in my toy area, and I took a sip of it and then proceeded to finish drinking the entire beer. But at five, do you know it's a beer? I didn't know. I knew it was my dad's drink. I didn't know that it had an effect until I got in trouble because it got me a little inebriated and I ended up peeing in my toy box right next to where I had drank the beer and I got in trouble for that. And then it wasn't until years later that I kind of put the things yeah. together like, oh, yeah. now I get it. Here's a sad That's unusual though because beer is an objectionable taste, especially when you're young. You kind of have to build a tolerance. So a, a five-year-old wanting to finish a warm uh, beer, that's, uh, that's kind of unusual. Yeah, it's in the blood. I don't know. I, I remember I didn't dislike it, but I noticed it was definitely a different a different taste. When huh. he said that that was daddy's drink, um, yeah. that really hit me hard because for the longest time when I was with my kids and we come from a family where we share drinks, you know what I mean? If somebody's got a drink and it's got a straw in it, it's fair game for whoever's in the house. Okay. Unless it was daddy's pop. Oh. And so my kids would go to grab it and I go, you can't, that's daddy's pop. Okay. And that meant there was alcohol in it. And gotcha. um, that really makes me feel sad because all the time I was calling Daddy Pop, I thought I was, you know, shielding them or saving them. Yeah. But all I was was letting them know that Daddy's drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting how the meaning of things changes as your perspective changes over time. I thought at the time it was a cute way to talk about it. Right. But now, in retrospect, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. I could tell that it makes you feel kind of contemplative. So you get in trouble for peeing in the 
got in trouble, and I stayed sober until I was a late teenager. So I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a problem. So, so like, that was your first bout of sobriety. Yeah, like twelve years of sobriety <laughs> under your belt at that point. Huh? Yeah, and, and and it wasn't until I was about sixteen that I went camping with my sister, and she let me drink up there, and I blacked out my first time. I woke up outside the tent, not knowing what I had done the night before, and that was. That was my first experience with drinking. What did they tell you you did? I threatened my sister's boyfriend with an axe because I wanted her to be taken care of. And I'm just this young kid, you know, and they were adults. And I don't know if it was threatening, but more just I, I don't I don't I'm not a violent person. So that seemed weird. But I, I guess I was getting mouthy and was just being protective, if you will. Yeah. yeah. And so, wow. But that opened up the floodgates for me. I thought, OK, well, if that's. If, if my sister thinks it's okay, then all all bets are off. Well, so but hey, hang on. So you grew up in this house uh, with par- people that drank all the time, mm-hmm. right? And you even tried it when you were five. Mm-hmm. So and you didn't drink again until you're sixteen. Tell me about that, like junior high time when people are. That's typically people are a little bit at their most rebellious, and you know they want to do what they want to do. But when you were in that thirteen, fourteen year old. 12, no drinking then, huh? No drinking, no doing any drugs or any anything Any reason like why? Like, I, I think I just wanted to try and fit in as best as I could because I was bouncing back and forth between households for my father's out in you know Clearfield, and then they ended up moving to Europe, and so I was full-time with, with my mom and had to move back into North Ogden and try and make new friends, and that was just not the, the town where people partied or it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in my – in my view. So maybe you know. your friend group that they weren't doing that so you wanted to fit in with them? Yeah, I think so until they were that friend group that wanted to fit in like that, you know. And, and that was about 16, 17 when that when that started happening. Were you sick at all after that first blackout drinking experience? No, that was no. the thing. I didn't feel bad at all. I didn't have a hangover. I maybe it was the Miller Lite. I don't, I don't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Not entirely sure, but it wasn't until uh, high school where – because I was a very ungoverned child. I was the last of six and my mom had had me at a later time in, in, in life and, and she was tired. You were the bonus brother. I was the bonus and she worked graveyard and so I was left to my own device. I was always wandering, doing my own thing. I was just trying to make my own entertainment wherever I could. A lot of the times to get out of the house because while my parents were home, it was not a good environment. They fought all the time, all the time. Um, from about five o'clock till about 10 o'clock when the drinking would start and when it would end, it was just not a good experience to be in. So I was either trying to leave or I would invite all of my friends and we would then party in the basement and they wouldn't come down because they were doing their thing. And so that's, that's where it began for me is I, I didn't have the oversight that I needed. You know, my father was in Europe in a, in a very pinnacle time of my adolescence and, and I couldn't reach out for help or I don't know that I would have wanted to at that point anyway. Um, and I just continued to be the household where people would come and they would smoke weed and we would drink and we thought it was normal. You know, we weren't getting into trouble. We were just having fun on the weekends. It wasn't during the week type of a thing. And, you know, it, it, it just never really stopped. It just kept progressing after high school. You know, I just stayed, I got introduced to the, to the club and to the party scene. And so kind of went from just everyday on average partying to on the weekends, we had to make sure we were at the club and. You know, we had to be ready with what party favors we had at the time. And at any time during that 16 to, you know, your early 20s, um, any bits of trouble? Any? Yeah. Yeah. I 
My life could be completely different if uh, I decided to get in trouble when I was 18 as opposed to 17. I I thought it would be a good idea to drink with one of my buddies and go out and steal car stereos at 16 and decided to attempt to take a, a stereo out of a camper trailer that was parked on, uh, on, on an elevated driveway and we got caught and I got away. But as I was getting away, I jumped off of the driveway about 10 feet and shattered my ankle. Like, have you ever seen misery? You know, when they hobble, oh, yeah. that's what my ankle <laughs> did. Horrible. And I got up and ran away. Didn't get caught that night. That's a whole other story. We don't have enough time for, but eventually got routed out for it. Mm-hmm. And caught a burglary charge and I was 17 Mm. And I hadn't had anything on my record before, and I was able to pay the fine, disappoint my mother, you know, and, and do the community service or whatever it was. But I did not know the severity of my action at that time. Had it been 18, my life would be completely Long-term different. Long-term consequences, mm-hmm. yeah. So you got in a little trouble there, uh, but now you and your friends are in the party scene. We're in the party scene, and drinking's constant. Um, it was pretty, you know, I was living on my own. You know, right at eighteen, I moved out, and so I had a roommates. You know, I think four of us. That just it was just the thing to do. I didn't really slow down. I mean, it, at the time, I had no idea it was a problem. It was just, you know, I worked, I rented, I had everything taken care of, and it was just having fun with your friends. And then, you know, I met my first wife and we got pregnant and that, that'll reel you back a little bit, right? And, mm-hmm. and so I slowed that process down uh, in my early 20s. And so this is about 2003, 2004 and tried to live the married life, tried to go to church, tried to make things right, do what you're supposed to be doing. But there was just still always a constant and that was beer. You know, it was always, it was always after work or it was always on the weekend and it was just normal. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem in, in, in the early years of that relationship because it, it just is what it was. It, I wasn't causing issues well, that it, I saw. It's weird because it – I remember being in rehab and thinking, why am I here? I mean I'm supposed to be in rehab for a drug and a drug is something that's illegal and beer is legal. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when we're done with this meeting, we're going to go to my dealer and that's Maverick and you can buy it there. You know what I mean? So it it's kind of gets a pass, but it, it it's – Well, and I think for the longest time in Utah, the, the beer alcohol content was so low – that I think it was easy to justify like, well, it's not like I'm drinking. It's Utah beer. Liquor mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. But you're right in that it it, it, it it seems to be fine until it isn't. And it had to get to a point where it wasn't fine for your first wife. Well, in hindsight, I recognize that now. You know, I, I used to to say we just weren't meant to, to be together. We, it wasn't the right fit, you know. But in looking back and, and recognizing I was a very selfish person and I did not put my wife first at all. You know, I, the, I'm kids, there with you. the kids were there and I did my best, but I paid no attention to her needs and, and her concerns. It was, I was very selfish and, and eventually that, you know, through the stresses of the 08 economy and, you know, us falling apart, we, we split, you know, with three kids and, um, and that was unfortunate, but it, you know, it was for the better, you know, we're, we're better people for it, but I, I, Slowed it down for a couple of years from about 29 to 31. 30, you kept it at bay. Kept it at bay because I don't, I had three kids to raise and support myself at the same time. And um, I, I met my, my wife, my current wife. We've been together for roughly 12 years and, and she's a gem. And I remember when we first met, she, she said, if there's going to be any problem in our relationship, I think it's going to be your drinking. 
And I, I was like, no, it's not going to be a problem. Cut right to the chase. Huh? Cut, yeah, she recognized it. And, and, and that was about the time that my father, he had moved back and, and he, was, he was back in my life. He had given – this is – he had given me his old AA book. And he says, I think you're going to need this more than me. And I'm like, whatever. Actually, alcoholics are for quitters. You know, they need meetings. I'm not that guy, you know. And eventually that full story came back. I now have the second edition AA book that I bring to meetings. And people are like, wow, let me look at that. You know, it's all signed with everything from his rehab days when he was an inpatient. But uh, I didn't recognize the, the warnings. I didn't pay attention to any of it. It's eerie how similar your story is to me because with the sober mind you're looking back and all these people were trying to help they didn't know how to do it from Mm -hmm. you know and you're like what are you guys talking about i remember walking through uh you know an office and someone coming up to me going like are you okay and i'm like yeah i'm cool and he stops me and goes no, are you really okay? And I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Because I was oblivious to all the signs and what everybody else was seeing because I thought I was doing okay. And the reality was I wasn't. Yeah, you think you're fooling everybody. But, you know, yeah. and you think you're smarter and you think you're different and you're the one person that's going to be smarter than this. Yeah, I thought I I thought I, I didn't have any problem. I had it at bay. I had my home. I had my job. I had the kids. You're checking a lot of boxes. Yeah, I, the successful people check. Yeah, there was there was nothing wrong, but the occasional fight and the occasion. Well, it became more and more playing the same script over. as like, I'm sorry, what I do last night, I didn't mean it, you know, kind of a thing. And and you know, over the course of 12 years, that just started becoming a little bit more frequent and a little bit more frequent. And my poor family, they they were subjected to everywhere we went to eat determined by the craft beer menu that they had. Sound familiar? You know, every every activity we did, it, it it revolved around whether there was a liquor store close or whether there was you know good beer in the selection. I always had a beer in my hand at all time. That was my identity. I started brewing it and marketing it. And I was saying, just going to ask, did you ever get into? I it? did. I thought I was like, oh, this is a great way. I'm an evangelist. You know, this is just part of my craft. <laughs> it's my hobby. But that's the thing. Is like, hey, we're going bowling. Do they have a bar? You know what I mean? And 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 before we went to a restaurant, I would always ask. Is there a bar? And not what kind of food. Is it Italian? Is it Mexican? Whatever. It's like, is there a bar? Mm-hmm. And that was my only bench that I wanted to to, to get. It's like, I, whatever else it is, I can deal with. But if they don't have a bar, that's a no-go. Yeah, it was, it, it was rough. And eventually my career moved toward a drinking – what's the word? What's, what's the way to explain it? Uh, acceptable to drink in the environment. So as, a, as an, an account executive, my job is to wine and dine customers, mm-hmm. you know, to travel. I was doing a lot of international travel in, in my 30s, and my job was to just go out and entertain, get, entertain and get yeses. And so it was normal. I was getting paid to drink. Um, and the, the, the frustrations just kept starting to grow. You know, I, my kids are growing up, and I remember my, my middle child, we were, we were camping, and I told him I wanted to try and quit. My wife was talking about me trying to quit, and he, I was sitting there drinking beer with him, and he's 13 at the time, and he, I'll, I'll never forget it. And he looks at me, and he's like, Dad, you said you were going to quit drinking, but all you're doing is drinking more. And that was like, wow, they're watching me. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're paying attention to me. But that didn't stop me. Like I was so uh, – 
just for my clarification, was he drinking beer too? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. No. All right. Because you said we, I couldn't tell sorry, if you meant sorry. that you were drinking with him as in sharing yeah, no. a beer, you know, if this was like vacation and even no. Rusty were no, having we, a beer. No, we were up in Flaming Gorge just around the fire. Yeah, yeah. But, but he was observant enough to say that like and, – and I think that takes – I mean, I think about it from a 13-year-old boy's perspective. That takes a lot of courage to kind of call your dad out on something. So my guess is, I mean, I don't know if I'd have ever done something like that with my dad. I don't know if I was courageous enough. So your son was pretty strong. And I think that's also an indication of how important it was to him. Yeah, I think he had seen his dad starting to slip away. Like I was not I was not a present person. It was all about me and it was all about that that end result of getting that beer. And I let myself go um, physically. And and now in looking back, even going back into my 20s, but specifically my 30s, I I just kept getting in my own way. Every time I would see some sort of success, I would would pull myself back two, two feet or two steps, you know, whether it was too hungover to do the next presentation or it was something alcohol related that would cause me to jeopardize my own success. And so I was constantly rebuilding. And it was just this vicious cycle of just trying to get ahead, getting kicked back. And, you know, you relate that with the experience with my, with my spouse is, you know, you know, make the mistake, really screw up, apologize, work to get better, screw up again. And and just that vicious cycle over and over again of asking for forgiveness and, and, and trying to but no willingness to change. I just couldn't see myself as somebody that didn't drink. I didn't think in my mind it was possible. You're listening to Mike Jolly here on Project Recovery talking about a vicious cycle that he is uh, in, and he says he can't get out of his own way. We're going to find out how he finally gets out of his way coming up next. Ah, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, that's Dr. Matt Woolley. Uh, Our guest today is Mike Jolly. Mike, so you're talking about getting in your own way, a vicious cycle that you're in. Uh, You're starting to fight with your uh, wife more. Your son's noticing you're drinking more, mm-hmm. but you're talking about stopping drinking. Why does that come to be a thing? Is it is it because my wife wanted me to at the time? Um, she was recognizing that I was I was I was becoming a shell of what I used to be, and, and internally I was I was becoming extremely depressed, and I was I I was fighting with myself because I did not believe and I couldn't see the other version of me that was out there. I did not know that person existed. And so I just, I, I decided to give recovery a try, you know, at, 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 you know, against my own wanting to, I was doing it for my wife. It wasn't for me. And I tried an outpatient program. And when I went in there, I thought I was so much better. I showed up in slacks and a dress shirt. Like I was a cleaned up alcoholic, you know, and I'm, and I'm looking around at all these other people struggling with one element or another thinking, I don't have a problem here. So I left. And the, the relapses at that time, they were called relapses. Cause when you learn a little bit about recovery, you know, they're, they're, they're much stronger as you continue, but it just, the drinking continued and, um, work wasn't getting any, any better. You know, I wasn't producing, I'm get, I'm gaining a ton of weight. The, ha- the family is just not happy, you know, and I was not doing anything about it. My wife introduced me. Well, she she sought out recovery for me. So, it feels like you're jumping, uh, you know, some steps. I mean, you're you're talking about a tale that um, 
everybody kind of goes through. Um, you know, wife's unhappy, you're unhappy, mm-hmm. employer's unhappy, uh, a lot of unhappiness. But was there a rock bottom? Was there a mm-hmm. was there a point to where it said, "Hey, look, either something's got to change yep. or everything's going to change." Yeah, and, and and it my rock bottom was accelerated when I started going to meetings and when I started seeking out help, um, learning a little bit about you know what it means to quit. I I tried uh, this. Uh, it was at the time it was workout addiction recovery, mm-hmm. which is now the school of addiction recovery. And I was attending the classes, I was doing the workout, but I just couldn't stop. And I was giving myself any excuse to drink and stop that program. And I, and I thought, I'm going to go see a therapist. Let me ask you this. What are some of the excuses you gave yourself to drink? Because I did the same thing and they were silly excuses, sometimes so much in the fact that they were manufactured excuses. They were scenarios that I would put in play so I would have an excuse to drink, knowing full well that the outcome I was going to get was the outcome I was going to get. I mean, I was a manipulator at best where I would say, I'm going to do this. She's going to say this. And then I'm going to tell her that's why I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. And I knew from the get go, if I would have said this, she was going to say that. So I was just, I, so I'm curious to what are some of the excuses because people at home might not know their behavior is doing that. But the reality is, is that we are master manipulators. Well, I, I would promise to only drink on the weekends, you know, and I would promise to only drink, uh, Utah beer, if you will, the lower content, um, or one or two at a time. You mm-hmm. know, and I would try and just curb how much I drank, and that led me into the lies of I'd already been at the bar the bar earlier and had four, and she only saw two, so I didn't stop those behaviors. I was so just, she's like, "Well, how are you drinking two and getting this drunk?" Mm-hmm. I mean, I yeah, yeah, and I the the turning point for me was I in her it, it, I stopped doing the recovery and I decided to go to a therapist or re- what I thought was a recovery therapist. And I was very dark in my head and I was having suicidal thoughts and I was unhappy. And I, I talked to this therapist and I was spilling at her that I'm an alcoholic, but I can't quit and I don't want to quit. I'm having these dark feelings. And her advice was exactly what I wanted to hear. And she said, well, have you ever tried to manage your alcoholism? Just try and have one or just try and have two. And I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I came home. That was a Monday. I came home and I told my wife what the therapist said that I'm going to manage. I, I had two beers and went to the gym. And I, I see, I got it done. Well, that was Monday. Um, Thursday was an all-night bender at the bar. She left on Friday. She said, I'm not going to sit and watch this. So she packed up and, and, and took our youngest and left. And she was ready to, to start making plans. She had been planning on moving out previous months in advance. I learned this after. But she was giving you one more chance. She was giving me a chance. And I just failed 100%. And so she left on Friday and I stayed drunk from you know Thursday through Saturday. My rock bottom was, was Saturday when I was, when I was at home. I'm alone. My family's gone. My thoughts are deep. And, and I thought it was, I thought I was going to have to make a terrible decision. And I had reached out to my best friend in California and he knew he could hear in my voice that I was about to do something stupid or I needed help. And he, he actually called the South Auckland city police to come do a wellness check on me. And that, that was exactly what I needed because I was preparing for the worst, you know, for myself. Which was, which was, I was, I was thinking of hanging myself, you know, I, I couldn't see myself out of any other way. I had a trust set up for my family. I had life insurance. I, they were going to be millionaires. If I were gone, the problem would be gone if I'm gone. 
and that the police came knocking on my door as I'm laying on my floor. And I just, I remember just inviting them into my house and they took me loving arms to the hospital where I was able to detox for a couple of days. And at that point it was, it was a prayer as I was having a phone call with my friend, I, I, I decided to turn to a higher power. Everyone talked about it. It was the last thing on my list to try. You had some experience in the recovery world. You had tr- attempted it a couple of times. But I didn't – it wasn't a real attempt. It was there, – there wasn't a belief that, you know, some fictional character or whatever, a lord or a Jesus or a Gandhi or whatever is going to solve my problem. But you said something that was interesting earlier in this podcast that you said – and I felt the same way in, in, in my addiction. I could never see a life – where alcohol wasn't a part of it. I could never see a version that alcohol wasn't in it for myself. I mean, I, I, to me, that seemed so foreign that there was going to be this me out there that alcohol wasn't a part of. And I didn't want to be a part of that guy because that guy didn't seem like a guy I wanted to know or be. Mm-hmm. And now I can't see it the other way. Yeah, 100%. And, and knowing what I know now, when I was reaching – out to that higher power. I was, I was doing my step two. <laughs> I was acknowledging that a higher power could restore me to sanity. And at that point of surrender, that was my surrendering point was, okay, I've done it all. I've tried every option. Nothing is working. My way is not working. I cannot be the director of my own story. And the comfort that came over me, that's why when the police showed up, I'm like, just take me away. Like I'm done with this. I was so done hating myself. I was so done with the hangovers, with the, just being unhealthy, detoxed in, in the hospital and went immediately to an inpatient program at Wasatch Crest up in Heber City. And when we dropped me off at that recovery center, it was the most comforting feeling that we had in a long time. We both knew this was going to be a good thing. And in my life, I had never given 100% to anything. I'd always get right up there and push myself back or half-ass something. And I decided to give this recovery, this sobriety, 100%. And, and I did. And I went into that uh, inpatient program. I brought in six or seven different books. I read about 12 books during my 30-day, but about spirituality, a lot of uh, Brene Brown, getting over the shame and the guilt type of a thing. And, and I knew that I, I was given an opportunity for that 30 days to get my mind right and to absorb everything that was coming my direction. So I did everything that was asked of me. I was speaking very openly with my therapist, started leading the groups and prayers and just trying to really just all in. And now, were the things that you were doing, was that uncharacteristic of you? Um, opening up to a therapist. And or, running groups and leading and listening. Yeah, yeah I was – yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't want to talk about my problems. I didn't want to share that I was one of the others. You know, I, I had a very difficult time admitting I was an alcoholic until I was staring at you straight in the face and going, there's no other option, buddy. You're an <laughs> alcoholic, you know? And, and when I got out of treatment so that I went in in May or the beginning or it was June. So right June of, of 2020. So right as COVID starting <laughs> and, uh, and everything got locked down while I was in there and we couldn't get visitors. There was nothing. And it was very stressful in that regard, but I just stayed focused. And when I got out, I knew I needed to have a program to dive right into. So that the people at the school of addiction recovery, Dustin Hawkins, Frank Jameson, there's so many folks up there that welcomed me back into the program with open arms and I hit the ground running. And I knew that I needed to stay in the middle of the herd. 
So I, I was at that program every day. I was at AA meetings every other day that I wasn't at that meeting. So from every day of the week, I was in an AA meeting. And eventually, you know, my first year of sobriety, I took a standing position for District 1 in AA and became their literature chairman so that I was kind of forced to go to all the different meetings. And I knew that I couldn't steer away from that because I was still too fresh. My mind was still – there was still a little bit of an opening there. Like I can get sober for a year and you know maybe go back to having a drink you know, and, and it's not going to be a problem. Luckily, I haven't had to experience – I'm not going to test it. I know that I have an allergy to alcohol and that it will cause me to break out in handcuffs or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've, 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 I've focused on – Staying in the middle of the herd and getting healthy. I was able to lose 60, 60 something pounds, you know, and that's just amazing. Get into the best shape of my entire life. Started sponsoring people, started helping people. Then from year two to now was was the biggest change that I had noticed was the example I was having on others. And that feels so good when you've got people, family, friends who are struggling and know that you've gone through and you've become sober and they're sending you a Facebook message or your, your, your family friends are calling you and saying, hey, my, my daughter and my son You're a success help. story. You're giving hope to others out there that are battling addiction right now. And it is a family disease. And, um, I mean, family members reach out to me all the time to try to help their loved ones. And my first question is, do they want it? And if they don't, then we got to figure out how to get them to that point because if they don't want it, it's not going to take, and, it, and and that's a miserable feeling. We're trying to help somebody who doesn't want it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just talked about it, you know, and that was much of my addiction as well. People wanting to help, but what? Why are you helping me? I'm cool. I'm good. I got this, but I didn't. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard when you want to help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. It, I, my heart breaks for it, you know. But you know that it might not be their time. If they, they'll they'll come to you eventually, you know, and, and that seems to be the case. But all it. it Getting sober, my life is completely different. I don't know if we're at the point where I'm talking about how you it is know, today. But, go ahead. You know, all the problems that I had in, in, in work. And by the way, it, before – during my rock bottom, I lost my job too. So I lost my job the week of that whole thing. So I was unemployed. I was like – I was going to lose everything. So my rock bottom was pretty solid. But in sobriety, it's it was it was almost immediate the changes that took place within – my marriage, you know, I was the problem. I was the reason for the fight. It was I was so defensive of my addiction that any time my wife tried to get in its way, I resented her for it. Mm-hmm. I resented anybody for it, and I treated them as such. And it only took until I was able to clearly see my actions so much affected my family and the way that they treated each other and the way that they interface with me. It, there, there, it was like walking on eggshells living in, in my home. Prior to my life in sobriety, I used to say I fought harder for alcohol than I did for anything in my life. And that is probably the most sad statement you can make. I mean, I loved my kids. I loved my ex-wife. I loved my family. I loved my job. But I fought harder to keep alcohol in my life than I did any other of those things. And that is sad. Yeah, I, I was in the same boat. It took me getting to a rock bottom and, and having that only choice of like, look, live or die, you know, be happy or don't be happy to realize that I'm giving up one thing in exchange for everything else rather than giving away everything I have for that one thing. And when that clicked, I, it, 
wow, did it take me a long time. <laughs> it's, it, 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 uh, man, it's, it's like I'm looking in a mirror. And so how are things now with your kids, your ex-wife and your current wife? I, I've gone through the 12 steps um, with almost everybody in my life. And I have made amends to my ex-wife. We've got a really good relationship. I've apologized to her for the period in when we were married and the behavior in which I treated, you know, I wasn't the nicest guy, you know, um, I, I apologized to that. And she said, I'm, you know, we're on a really good relationship now. She's very proud. My kids are very proud. My kids are very involved in my recovery at this time. You know, they, they come to the gym with me, you know, they, they'll, they'll come watch me speak at different events or they know that, you know, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I've got group. And that group is so that I'm going to be a better father, parent, husband to them because I can process, I can work out, I can help other people. Um, and it, it, it's my daily maintenance. You know, I need that in my life because I know that my addiction's working out just as hard as I am in the parking lot doing push-ups, waiting for me to have <laughs> a lapse in judgment or a moment of weakness or, you know, a bad attitude or what, what have you to just weasel their way in and go, ah, you deserve a drink. I can't have that in my life. And, and I know that if that thought comes up, you can't control the first thought that comes in your mind, but you can control the second and you can control the third. And if that second thought and that third thought keeps coming back to the first thought, I know I need a meeting or I need to talk to my sponsor or I need to go and help somebody and change that mindset. The beautiful thing about being in recovery now is you don't know how spiritually bankrupt you are and how spiritually sick you are when you're there. It's when you recognize that spirit in your life and that higher power and knowing that there is somebody helping you and that you can give it away and have trust and faith that you recognize when it's not there. So if you start to slip, if you start to have negative thoughts or go into those repeating behaviors, you can recognize it because you don't feel your higher power with you. You don't feel that, you know, that goodness that, that, that needs to be there. And you can make that course correction really quick. And that's my daily my daily reprieve and activity is just to constantly try and make sure that I'm feeding myself with spiritual experiences. It's not just saying a prayer and, and, and speaking to a higher power. I find a higher power in everything. You know, I look at Christ. I look at trees. I look at, um, you know, I, a sweat lodge was a big portion of my recovery while I was in the, in Wasatch Crest. We went to a Native American Anipi ceremony and I was able to just give it all away in there and let go, shed the rock and, have since introduced that into our sewer program on a 90 day basis. We take everybody in the recovery up to Camus and, and do a sweat lodge and pray and, and just give yourself those spiritual experiences. I, I found hiking was a big deal to keep me in the right mind. You know, we, I, I did a business trips were a really big trigger for me. I, I was paranoid to travel. Oh yeah. Cause you walk into the airport and you got some time to kill before your flight. So you go sit at the bar yeah, I'll just have a beer. It's going to help the flight. And then they come up and go, hey, do you want a shot with that for an extra buck seventy-five? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Casey even knows how much it costs. Yeah. Well, that's what it was back then, you know. And But yeah, I mean, doing a lot of those things for the first time can be triggers. So now are you traveling? Uh, not as much as I was, not international, but I have accomplished. I have successfully done a few business trips since I've been sober and have stayed sober. And the first one that I did was down to Phoenix, Arizona. And I was so excited because I drove down there. I was so excited that I had, had accomplished that, that I was like, well, I've got some time and I feel good. I'm going to go hike the Grand Canyon. 
so I went and I hiked the Grand Canyon in a day just on my way home. Um, and the feeling of accomplishment and spiritual – like that is a grand place to go find your higher power. Sure. And it had such an effect on me because I never thought I could do something like that. I didn't think I'd ever be in shape, let alone be willing to go and <laughs> go and go. Well, when the- you're out partying and you're running and gunning, the last thing you want to do is go hike the Grand Canyon. I've been in business meetings for the past four days entertaining and making sure everybody's happy. Mm-hmm. You just want to go home and sleep. But the fact that you had energy – and the will and the want to go hike the Grand Canyon speaks volume. Yeah, it was it was fun. I, I I was almost in tears the entire drive home from that experience. That I I came directly into my group at the School of Addiction Recovery, and, and it's like I was burying my testimony. Like you guys, this was the most amazing <laughs> experience. I I you know I just felt so full, and I convinced the group about twenty five of us to go and replicate that experience last year. So we oh, took cool. everybody down to the Grand Canyon. We did step work down there on the bottom. We bonded and I was able to provide that spiritual experience to to my peers and, and to into struggling addicts. And and that's the that's the beauty of it is to help other people. That's what keeps you it's what keeps me sober is to be able to to be that example and to be able to lead somebody out of the depths. Well that's ownership. Like we we talked a little bit earlier about like you have to own the problem in order to make the change, right? We talked about that. But that works on both ends of that spectrum. When you're in tears, driving home, being so proud of yourself that you accomplished that and you had that spiritual experience and that you are this different person, that's the beauty of the other end of the spectrum of ownership. You get to own the positives too. And I I think that's the real reward is we we have to own our, our mistakes in order to change them. But you, you, the reward is you get to own the change because you did it. And that's a, that's amazing. You know, and I can only speak for me in my recovery is some of the blessings that have come from recovery. Um, the ownership of them. Yeah, there's that. But do you feel you're worthy of those? You know, and that's a tough thing mm-hmm. for, for me mm-hmm. still in my head to do is like, how come I get to have these, you know, Am I doing enough to to receive these? Because I feel so blessed and so fortunate and so lucky to have these wonderful things happen. And sometimes you, you it's it's scary. Mm-hmm. It really is scary because you're like, wow, I don't ever want this to go away. The beautiful thing about recovery is is you learn to love yourself again. And I went through that. I I, I as mentioned, I did not like who I had become, and I didn't have enough love for myself to love myself. But my peers in recovery were there to make it up. They were there to, to, to pour that on me when I had those feelings of doubt and insecurity. And it's now where I'm at a point where I'm happy with who I am. I love myself. I love my peers. I love my family. I cannot imagine what it would be like. Going, I can't believe it took me 40 years of my life to recognize what it could be like on the other side. And, you know, I often tell people, you know, if you're if you were to die today and you go up to the gates at St. Peter and you get to meet the best version of yourself, would you recognize him? Mm-hmm. And I think I would at this point, whereas before I wouldn't know what that person looked like. That's, that's a cool visual. I like that. That's deep. Yeah. So I'm curious before we end this podcast, because you say you get family members and people reaching out to you because you are a success story. You are hope for a lot of people that their loved ones can get better. When they say they want help, what do you tell them? It, can, it, it requires absolute honesty with yourself. Before you can consider getting help, you need to be honest with yourself and accept that you need the help. 
You know, you can't go into a program and lie to others and lie to yourself because you're doing yourself a disservice. You have got to be willing to show faith and have the ability to be truthful. And that's that's what I tell most folks is if you want help, I would love to help you, but you have got to be honest because it's only going to hurt you. Absolute honesty is a tough one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for somebody who's not battling addiction. Well, I for mean, anybody, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's self-awareness and honesty and authenticity. Uh, that takes a lot of um, maturity and sometimes a crisis for us to, to be willing to do that. Yeah. So it's it's interesting listening to Mike's story, and it hits home for me on so many levels. I'm curious to your thoughts, because the thing I love about Mike Jolly's story is not only did he own the bad parts, mm-hmm. he is owning his recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what's most impressive about it is that – you know, you know, a lot of times when we have people on the podcast, it's 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 telling the darker stuff that, you know, that's tough. But for for Mike owning the good stuff, you can see his face and then the way he lights up and he's like, yeah, and I hiked the Grand Canyon. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, and you're like, cool, man. It almost made me want to. Yeah, you, know, you know, but I, I love the way he owns his recovery and yeah, he's yeah. living his best life. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the boost I get out of coming in and talking to people who are in the place you're at in their life is all the good that you're doing for others. Like it it just is a constant reminder for me that we feel better when we're doing well for others. And you had to build yourself up and go through recovery. And now you obviously really enjoy doing that. Um, One other thing, one other thought I had though uh, in listening to your story, Mike is um, we started this whole show off today talking about like this culture of uh, not taking care of ourselves, like we're not taking a mental health day. Self-care isn't the culture. There's some stigma around that. And then you said something really cool. You said, my kids know that on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, when I go in for my for my meetings, I get to work out. And these are the things I do to, to I, I can't remember how you phrase it, but to live your best life, to, to, be, to, a better to dad. be a better dad. What a cool way to destroy the stigma of self-care. By teaching our kids through our example that when we take care of ourselves, when when dad goes three times a week and spends those hours working on himself, he's really working on being able to be there for everybody else. And and self-care, your kids are going to grow up with that example. And nothing is, you can read stuff in a book, you can have people tell you things, but nothing is really more powerful than a good example of something. And I would say that gives me hope that in the future generations, there will be less of a stigma about self-care and mental health and, and, and that taking care of ourselves really means we're taking care of other people. So I, I think that's a, that's a beautiful takeaway I have from, from Mike's story today. Mike, real quick before we let you go, um, what do you love about the SOAR program? Uh, what don't I love about it? Um, First and foremost, it's the community. It's the people involved. It's it's not like any other inpatient or outpatient program I've ever seen because it, we're so invested in each other and we love each other so much. We're very, very active in each other's lives. You know, we can call each other at any time. We're we're doing group events. I love the fitness part of it because that has completely changed my my appearance and and my how I feel. But it's the coaches. It's the program. You know, we're 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 just growing. We've, we've moved into a new building as of about a year or two ago, and it's a wonderful gym facility with a, you know, with a processing room. 
I just I love them all. I love the coaches. I love I love my peers. You know the program directors. You know Dustin Hawkins, Frank Jameson. You know Tyler. There's so many people out there. I could just name all of them. And and I love it. Yeah, School of Addiction Recovery. It's called SOAR. Uh, if you or a loved one's looking for some help, they'd be a great place to start. We want to say thank you for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery as we continue on for another year. We're stoked. Uh, I've just been told by our producer. We have now reached over a million downloads. Uh, and you can find us on TikTok. Uh, just look for the hateful comments directed at Dr. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're there. I love you guys. I mean it. And in case you forgot, uh, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, PhD. <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.